Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Meet the Investor podcast. This is Artin Zahiri and I'm the co-host of this feature along with Ramir Kishwani. Today we are interviewing Sergio Pauli, founding partner at Betaboom. Betaboom invests in pre-seed startups building the future for women in the U.S. rising majority, Black, Latinx, Asian, and Middle Eastern customers. The firm looks for and invests in under-the-radar founders and helps them grow their startup with daily coaching and support for marketing and product experts. So Betaboom is a pre-seed fund investing in software companies that are building the future for women and ethnic minorities in the U.S. And, um, you know, so women and ethnic minorities have been the driving force of the U.S. economy for the past, I think, two decades, if not more. And, you know, we expect that to continue for many decades to come. So that's who we're focusing on investing in. Great. And and it, it would be helpful also maybe taking a step back, uh, what exactly with, maybe you could talk a bit about your background, what part of your experience or upbringing led you to, um, you know, seek out a venture like this, become the managing partner? Uh, what kind of brought you to where you are now? Yeah, for sure. So um, for me, I think the journey was uh, very unexpected. I, I, I don't think I took the traditional path to where I am right now. And I, to be honest, and even in college, I would have never in a million years thought that I would be doing this. Um, really, I think the seeds for doing Beta Boom started when I was just seven years old, eight years old, when, when I immigrated to the U.S., um, I immigrated to, um, you know, a, the lowest income community around the Boston area. It was really, really tough. It was, you know, there was rampant gang warfare. Um, it was, from what I understand, the heroin importing capital of the East Coast. So it was just massive gang warfare and, um, and, and you know, massive poverty. And, you know, what I realized throughout my life was that, you know, I was, I was able to go to a really good college, definitely through a lot of hard work, but also a lot of luck, to be honest. And, um, you know, what I realized was that a lot of people that I grew up with, not only in, in Chelsea, where, where we landed, but also in, you know, other communities where we lived subsequently, I realized that a lot of the folks that I grew up with were smarter than I was, were more driven, more passionate, but they just didn't get the same breaks in life, you know? And so simply because they went to like University of Massachusetts, you know, they had a very different uh, opportunities, you know, than, than I did. Um, and so that always stuck with me. Uh, and then, you know, in, in college, like I said, I didn't, I studied physics and economics. I had no idea. I did do computer science as well, but I, I, didn't you know? I was honestly scared of finance because I came from a you know former communist country, and I didn't really understand. I, I didn't really understand capitalism, to, you know, if, if I'm being frank. And um, it kind of it was intimidating. And what ended up happening was after college, I ended up in Silicon Valley. I you know I, my first job was at a tech company at Google pre-IPO, and. I went to um, you know to work for a couple of other companies before starting my own innovation consultancy. Um, but at some point during you know after ten years of working in Silicon Valley, I just got really really fed up with it. I got really fed up with um, kind of the homogeneity of the innovations that were happening there. So it was all like I thought you know 
innovations that were for really elite people, um, you know, notwithstanding like the race and, you know, gender biases, but, you know, there were just not innovations that most of the people that I knew would find useful. And so, so then, you know, that, then that kind of experience that, you know, being fed up with being in this bubble and, and also my background as a, as a kid kind of, merged and you know I, I we started looking around at, at other emerging tech hubs and quickly realized that there were really amazing innovators building massive impactful and useful to the majority of society products and businesses and the other thing that was really striking about that was that you know these innovators were much more diverse in every sense than the people that I met in Silicon Valley, not not only gender wise, not only ethnically, but also socioeconomically more diverse in terms of their educational background, their work experience. Um, but yet they were building really, really amazing tech companies. And so that really led to Betaboom. Um, you know, my professional experience was leading innovation and building uh, innovation teams and, and uh, helping innovation teams innovate better. So I was really great at that. And um, yeah, and I, we just thought, you know, we saw an opportunity, my, my wife, who is my partner and my boss, we saw an opportunity and, um, you know, that, that they're awesome innovators and what they needed a little bit of help with is bridging that gap to expertise, to helping them find product market fit, helping them find scalable marketing channels. And we said, you know, this is what we've been doing for more than a decade, our entire career. So we're, we're perfect for the part. And we sold everything in Bay Area, moved to Utah to start Beta Boom, and the rest is history. Wow, that's a really um, phenomenal story. I love how you kind of took us from the beginning of when you came and like how that kind of rolled over into uh, into how yeah. you started Beta Boom. I'm curious to know. I feel something you didn't mention was uh, Atma Connect. Um, yeah, I was looking at your background, and I felt like that had to you had to have taken a lot of lessons from founding Atma. Um, and applied them to beta boom. So if you could just talk a little bit about that and um, about like some of the lessons that you learned that you're now applying to beta boom, that would be great. Yeah, for sure. So I think like, um, you know, first of all, one thing that um, is a real benefit in my experience is that I was a failed entrepreneur many times over. I was a entrepreneur. you know, um, I started probably like seven different things before uh, I reached any kind of success with Atma to, you know, to varying degrees of of success, those other seven failures. Some was, you know, like I quit mid, mid building the product. Some we built a product, but never gained traction. But Atma was really um, the first experience where, you know, I, as a founder, as a co-founder had built something from the ground up and, you know, we built the product and we gained traction. We gained a bunch of users and it, um, it was great. Like it, it, you know, Atma is still around. It has served millions of people, mostly in, in Indonesia where it is based. Um, but, um, you know, like I, I remember there was one story that was very poignant. There were, there was, there were floods in Indonesia. Um, maybe now it's about five years ago or four years ago. And even before people were talking about it on Twitter or Facebook, people on our platform on Atma were warning others about the floods, giving them information about what areas to avoid, what to do. And I just thought to myself, man, you know, like we, we, we did it. We did, so we made something that was like truly useful, truly used by people. And 
you know, like what that experience really taught me was how to overcome, you know, failure and how to like persevere and get to that point where there, there's like a tipping point in startups, you know, there are actually many tipping points, but that's the first one is when you actually like build something and you get like a significant number of people to use it. And then, you know, so I reached that and was, and, and that was really important because now I know how to get there. You know, like once you've gotten somewhere, you, you, you can pretty much guide somebody there again. Um, but I also like through my, you know, through the, through all the times that I didn't get there, I learned uh, what were the hangups, you know, like, why did I quit at that point? What was it that, you know, that didn't work out or the bad decisions that I made? So Atma was very formative. And then the other thing that Atma did was um, it kind of allowed me to become a mentor for um, Berkeley's Big Ideas competition. It's a social innovation competition. And um, in the process of being a mentor to, you know, to the innovation teams, to the students, I just fell in love with um, working with other, you know, innovators. And, and I was really good at it, I realized. You know, I was really good at kind of helping them to break down the problems and really trying to empower them rather than telling them they should do this or that or the other. Um, and, you know, that I think was, that, that made me think a lot bigger than myself. You know, when, 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 when I did Atma, I remember like uh, there was a time when, when I thought to myself, you know, this is awesome, but like I alone can only have a certain impact. But there are lot of, lots of entrepreneurs out there that are much, much better than I am. So if I'm able to enable, you know, if I can enable them, then they can, you know, reach a lot more people than I can do on my own. And so that, you know, once again, like it's all these threads that I never thought would, I, I never imagined they would come together in these ways, but that's really what, um, that was a very significant part of, you know, opening this opportunity and leading to beta boom. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I, I really love like the fact that like, um, your story is just like so interconnected, right? Like you said that you came in, um, you know, to like a lower income community and you talked a little bit about that and Atma was a social network that was kind of helping serve other, other, um, you know, low income communities. And now, you know, with Beta Boom, again, you guys have been running it for several years now. And um, maybe talk about like the uh, the initial journey of founding Beta Boom and like how you were able to succeed these goals of coaching more innovators and um, kind of, I guess, bringing this more diverse mindset and these diverse um, individuals into the venture capital fold, where, as we know, we've covered on Startup Society, only 2% of you know, venture capital funding go to, um, you know, black founders, for example. And then obviously if you cut it deeper, um, you know, that gets less and less. So maybe yeah. just talking a little bit about that and how, how did beta boom actually form together with the team that it did and, um, kind of what are the main goals, um, you know, beyond what we talked about? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I think that the biggest, kind of revelation for us was, you know, first of all, when we, when um, my, most of my career was doing um, user-centered product development, so really understanding the needs of users and building products and services around them. And, you know, the, the first thing that struck me about the venture capital space, even accelerators, was that, you know, these are things that haven't evolved, venture capital hasn't evolved since like the late 1800s. <laughs> Which to me is like <laughs> this is this is just like insanity, right? Because 
the the you know it, it's it's a service it's a product right for for entrepreneurs to be able to build their products of course for the investors as well but it's something that hasn't really materially evolved in over a century a, a century and a half right and the innovators have changed drastically you know like you know back in the especially like when when vc gained prominence in the 50s and 60s in in silicon valley it was mo like mostly white dudes from like M you know with phd's from mit and stanford that had first of all they were working on different kinds of innovations they were very like leading edge fundamental innovations um, but they also had very different backgrounds they had very different access to alumni networks to expertise um, you know, they, uh, a lot of them had, you know, a lot of experience with, with entrepreneurship, um, you know, through, through their school or through professional experience. And so now you have these innovators that are, have like a completely different profile. So the first thing that, you know, we thought about was, you know, let's throw everything out the door and let's think about like, how can we, you know, use kind of the underlying venture capital model, but then really tailor it to the needs and the strengths of this new wave of innovators. Um, and so, you know, so when, when we founded uh, Betaboom, it really started from kind of a, 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 you know, a blank sheet of paper. And we, and we um, just like any like good startup, what we did was we experimented a lot. Um, we had the good fortune that we had a little bit of, you know, our own capital that we could use to kind of seed beta boom and and to have that um, ability to experiment but we really tried everything we started out as an accelerator we re realized really quickly that the accelerator model was flawed for many many reasons in terms of uh, really you know un unlocking the potential of the founders that we were serving um, you know and so we really tried a lot of different stuff the thing that um, never changed. The thing that we started out with was that, you know, these founders, like they're, they're amazing. They're, they're brilliant. They know their problem better than anybody else. They're super resilient, but usually a lot of the founders that we're talking to, they didn't have the same access to, um, to expertise, to operational expertise. So, you know, me having spent most of my career in Silicon Valley, if I need like an SEO expert, I can call one up. Or if I need like, a Facebook ads expert or, or a user experience designer, you know, whereas founders that, for example, like never worked for a tech company and live in, you know, in um, like Kansas City, they may not have the same access to those experts and to that knowledge. So the first thing that we realized is that we need to work a lot more hands on with our founders initially to bridge that that gap, you know, to either build their internal knowledge or to connect them with experts that can be a part of their team, either as advisors, um, team members, consultants, what have you. So, you know, so, so basically um, just to kind of bring it all back, um, I think, you know, the, the first thing that is really important was just that we, we really, really wanted to innovate and we really experimented a lot when we founded Betaboom in 2018. Um, but honestly, like I, I, on the practical side, when um, we, we did something that probably I would say was foolhardy in the sense that we just jumped into it. We, you know, like we said, we, we see this opportunity. We think we are, we're perfect for the part. We, we think, you know, we have some ideas about, you know, opportunities that other funds and accelerators are meeting. 
Um, but we probably should have done a little bit more research before we like really you know sold our house and moved to Utah and started everything. Um, but in a way, like maybe you know, like when I look back at it, like I, I'm also thinking that maybe it was a good thing because we, we you know sometimes like you know people get stuck because they overthink things and and also the fact that we had sacrificed so much was such a driver for us to just keep going just you know like like you know we're we're a startup in a sense as well because we're a new, a new fund we're trying a very different model than most most of vc most accelerators and we have low points there are points where we doubt ourselves there are points where you know stuff didn't work out the same way and so you know given that we had given up so much, you know, this seemingly perfect life in Silicon Valley to do this thing is a huge driver for us to just keep going. And um, so, yeah, I mean, like, honestly, it was, it was, um, I think if I were to sum it up, it was just really thinking outside the box, really kind of, you know, taking on that innovative um, and, and experimentational spirit. Um, and then we just kind of went for it. You know, there were a lot of things about how venture capital works that we didn't know back then. And, you know, there are probably a lot of things that we still uh, need to learn. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if that answers if I did a good job answering your question. But that that's kind of how it happened. It was no, no, you definitely did. Um, and just to comment, like, I, I love the fact that you guys kind of jumped into it. I think they say that it's easy to fail when you have a safety net. But you kind yeah. of prevent yourself from failing if you have nothing to kind of <laughs> yeah no i definitely think that's true yeah absolutely and sergio you know a lot of our listeners are also aspiring entrepreneurs people in the early stages of maybe working on an idea i know beta boom you guys are investing equity into pre-seeds uh pre-seed startups what exactly are you looking for when you're making these investments? I guess, what is your kind of criteria? Um, are you investing more in, in a grand vision, a product, or, or is it the people, the team? Maybe a mixture of both. Maybe you could walk us through the uh, investment philosophy criteria, that kind of evaluation process. Yeah, for sure. So once again, like we're very contrarian to what most of venture capital does. Um, you know, first of all, like one thing that I'll say right off the bat is that the majority of, of venture capital funds, they invest in pedigree. So they invest in founders that come from top 10 schools that have worked for big name brand companies like Google or McKinsey. And um, you know what we found actually is that even within diversity focused funds, they vastly over index on like the ultra high pedigree founders. And what we found was that, and, and there's plenty of data that supports this is that Pedigree has very little, if zero, correlation with um, startup success. And so we look beyond that. We don't care where you went to school. We don't care where you worked. What we really, really focus on is how well you know your customer and how well you know your problem space. We love founders that have lived their problem, um, but you know at least have a really, really amazingly detailed insight into their customers. We love founders that have um, a lot of passion and perseverance that have shown a history of grit because the startup journey, you know, is probably the hard one of the hardest things that you can do, like, you know, along with like the Ironman and becoming a Navy SEAL, becoming a successful entrepreneur is up there in terms of the kind of grit you need. So we love founders that are really gritty. Uh, we love founders that come from, you know, challenging backgrounds because it shows us that they can overcome that and, and become successful. Uh, we also love founders that are super focused on what they're doing. So 
you know, if they're um, working on like four different things at one time, it's usually a red flag for us. We love founders that are like obsessed with whatever they're working on. Um, and the last thing that we really focus on is just like, how well do they get stuff done? You know, we focus on execution and part of our evaluation process is actually putting them through, you know, through the ringer and seeing, you know, how well do you actually like, you know, set milestones and meet them. And, you know, once, once again, like my experience is that even, you know, like it doesn't matter what diploma you have, like some founders, like with the best pedigree, just like are terrible at execution. And on the other hand, you know, some founders that don't even have a college degree are just amazing entrepreneurs. And so, um, and by the way, like all of this stuff has proven out in the um, professional world, you know, so like Apple doesn't even care if you have a diploma anymore. Google doesn't care whether you graduated from top schools. Amazon doesn't either, you know, so we 100% think the same thing is going to, it's even more true, I think, in entrepreneurship. Um, so that's that's who we look for. We look for those kinds of founders. We look for startups that are serving uh, women and the rising majority, particularly. Um, you know, that doesn't have to be your only uh, customer, but if, you do, if you're doing a particularly good job serving the needs of those groups, then we really like that because we see that that's where the economy is going. Um, and we only invest in software because, um, you know, my, my partners and I, that, that is where we spend 90% of our careers. We're super good at working with software companies. We really get, get that. Um, and that's where we can deliver the most value as investors. And so that's, you know, that's typically who we look for. And once again, uh, pre-seed as well. So sometimes, you know, startups apply to us when they're like raising their series A or 12, you know, or a $20 million seed. Uh, so we're way too early for those kind of startups. Got it. No, that was that was great to hear. It was actually refreshing to hear because uh, there's just so much credentialism in this space, uh, yeah. venture capital and, and yeah, I mean, math finance in general. That's such a you know crappy school. <laughs> it's an amazing entrepreneurial school, right? But you know, like probably like a Babson you know graduate compared to a Stanford grad, like you guys don't get the same look, but you should be getting better looks, honestly, because you guys are an amazing entrepreneurial school. So, but yeah, anyway, sorry. No, exactly, exactly. You hit on it. Um, well, we want to be respectful of your time, Sergio. This was a great uh, discussion. Last question I have, um, I'll bring it back to the, bring it back to the beginning here. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, a little bit of your immigrant story coming here at a very young age. Ramir and I are both first generation immigrants. Um, uh, my parents came here from Iran, um, Ramir from India. I'd be curious to hear, um, you know, I'd say for myself, being able to talk to my ancestors about their unique upbringing outside of the country has given me a unique perspective of navigating life here in America. It's given me some valuable lessons. I'm curious if you've had a similar experience uh, with anything about, um, you know, your your home country or your family out there has given you any kind of unique perspective that you'd say would uh, has helped you here and helped you be, become successful. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, so. I, you know, I I'm an immigrant, um, so. Um, you know, I think to be honest, the so two things. One, I think actually going through the immigrant experience, even as a first generation uh, immigrant, you know, um, one thing that I think I really, really love about immigrants is that usually they have a lot of hardship that they have to deal with. You know, so when my when we moved to this country, we lost all of our safety nets. We really only had one family member that could, you know, that, that was um, that could help us out in any way. All of our friends, my parents had to start their careers from, um, you know, from from the ground up 
different careers. So just overcoming that, I think, gives, um, first of all, builds incredible resilience. And second of all, I have to say that for me personally, it's giving me a ton of confidence. You know, So for me, to sell our house in, in, in Oakland and to move to Utah, you know, that seems kind of like a big jump for most people. For me, it's like, whatever, you know, like I gave up my entire life and like every single possession, like we came to this country with two suitcases and we made it work. So like, you know, like we're well-educated. I have been there, I, done that. Yeah, been there, done that, you know, so it actually helps, like it builds a lot of confidence, I think. So I love that immigrants are for the most part, really, really resilient, very confident. But the other thing that I think is really amazing is that when you bring people from different cultures and you bring different backgrounds, you know, together uh, in any context, even if it's, you know, Americans, you know, sixth generation Americans. But if you bring people that are from different, you know, cultures, different backgrounds, that's when innovation happens. And once again, this is like scientifically proven in the scientific world the best innovators, the, the professors and researchers that have the most cited studies are the ones that work with professors in other fields. So the same exact thing happens in innovation. You know, like the more experiences that you can bring together, the more innovative that you can be as a company. So I love like, and that's why we're so bullish on investing in like a truly diverse set of founders is because when we bring them all together, we know that magic is going to happen. So I think those are like the two big things, the two big, I think, benefits of being an immigrant. Awesome. Thank you for that. Well, Sergio, we, we really enjoyed this conversation. We appreciate, really appreciate your time. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks for, for having me on the show, guys. It was really yeah. fun.